Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread, because we need more than bread for life. We need more than social media. We need more than vocational success or academic success. We need more than relational strength and economic strength and health and emotional wellness. We we need more than political success. We need every word that comes from the mouth of God. We We need every word that comes from the mouth of God because, you can say this with me, when the Spirit of God breathes life into the people of God through the Word of God, we we thrive. So welcome to episode number 166. My name is Dan. I'm a pastor, a husband, a father, a son of God, and I am your Bible guide in this podcast. We're starting a new chapter, a new series on Paul's letters from prison, four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The the last two episodes, if you listened to those, were an introduction to the prison epistles as a group. We talked about Paul's time in prison, what that did to shape him. And this episode is a bit of an introduction to Ephesians specifically. You know, I really don't know for sure how this set of episodes in Ephesians is going to go. Ephesians has six chapters, but I'm fairly certain we could do about 30 episodes. I probably won't. In part because in the next year or two, I'll probably preach on Ephesians. Gotta, gotta say something for that. But I'm sure we'll spend at least two to three episodes in each chapter, maybe more. And because I value, we value just the reading of Scripture, I value you just listening, hearing Scripture. Even me, when it comes out of my mouth and through my ears, something happens, even more so than my stories, explanations, or interpretations. Our hearing of Scripture is most important. So most likely, I'll read the whole chapter each episode, even if we're only diving into a small portion of it. And and hopefully by the time we're done, the words of this letter, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, will become more and more familiar, more than familiar. So let's start with Ephesians chapter 1. I'm reading from the New International Version, and here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, before I go any further, just notice that this is kind of cool. These people have two addresses. They're the saints. That's what holy people means. They're the saints in Ephesus, and they're the faithful in Christ Jesus. One address is Ephesus. The other address is in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. That word means he chose ahead of time. He chose ahead of time that we would be adopted. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished. I love that word. He lavished it on us. With all wisdom and understanding, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him, again, him is Christ. In him, we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, God's will. God's will is woven throughout this first chapter, woven throughout the book of Ephesians. We've been chosen, predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Quite a bit different writing style than the Psalms, right? I mean, the Psalms, you have all these metaphors and these pictures, and and Paul is dense with information. Paul is dense with prose. He's he's describing things, and he uses words. And But then when you come to the end of the chapter and you have that prayer, oh my goodness, Paul's prayers, there, there's just something that happens to my soul when I read Paul's prayers. That's chapter one. On September 7, 1988, patrol officer Gary Dockery answered a trouble call in Walden, a mountain town about 15 miles north of Chattanooga. When he got there, he was shot point blank with a 22 pistol as he stood talking to the 911 caller in the driveway. The bullet went through his forehead and, and Dockery drifted into the shadows of a coma, never surrendering hope. His family had kept him on life support at a nursing home for seven and a half years. For seven and a half years, they waited, sometimes sitting vigil at the bedside of their son, their brother, their father, but they never gave up hope. They never gave up hope. They never gave up hope that somehow he would pull through. But hope began to wear thin. At one point, seriously ill with a 104-degree temperature and a lung infection that had worsened to pneumonia, he was transferred to a Chattanooga hospital. His family left someone at his bedside around the clock, but then on Monday, (laughs) the Monday after this fever came, something happened. There's not but one way to describe it, said friend Tim Thompson. It's a miracle of God. Dockery's fever broke, and without warning, he he started to mumble. I I looked up at him, and he had a look I'd never seen before, Lisa Dockery said through a hospital spokesperson. He seemed so at ease, and his eyes were wide open. I'm your sister, she said. "Uh Uh-huh, he responded. You're talking, she exclaimed. I sure am, he answered brightly. And then he began asking questions and telling jokes. He telephoned his mother and brother and asked for his sons, Colt and Shane, whom he hadn't seen since they were 5 and 12 years old. 
now like 12 and 19 or 20. And that began about an 18-hour talking spree for the man who for seven and a half years had drifted somewhere between sleep and death. In a survey from 1990, so 33 years ago, George Gallup found that while almost half the country at that time regularly attended church services, almost half regularly attended church services, only 6 to 10% were what he described as highly spiritually committed. Comparing the behavior of the church versus the unchurched, he found very little difference. Little difference in, in giving habits, little difference in morality, little difference in their belief in absolute truth. 33 years later, a book, The Dechurching of America, has come out and really talks about exactly that. Since that survey in 1990, tens of millions of people who were going to church quit going to church. In fact, in just the last 25 years, 42 million people. It's the greatest de-churching of America ever. More people have left the church in the last quarter century than were added during the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham crusades combined. A Christian research group called the Pine Tops Foundation did an extensive study of the next generation. They, they did the study not just to find out what is, but to help them understand what was coming. From their research, they determined that unless the trends change in the next 35 years, so go back to 1990 and you got about 35 years there. In the next 30, 35 years, 1 million young people a year, 1 million young people a year, people who grew up connected to the church, families went to church, they went to church, 1 million young people a year will leave the church. If things don't change, 35 million young people will leave the church in the next 35 years. I mean, think about it. In the last three years, we were so easily divided. Politics was more important than kingdom. Every time I look around, it seems like there's another church crisis or scandal. We've been discipled more by consumerism and social media than the gospel and scripture. In the last three years, 42% of the pastors in America have considered quitting. Every successive generation is more skeptical of the church. A great percentage of, of millennials on down actually feel like the church brings harm to a community rather than blessing, like the church is part of the problem, not the solution. Actually, I have a folder in my email that I've labeled Sick Church. And on one hand, it's, it's kind of discouraging, right? I mean, I've devoted my life to the church. I've been a pastor for, for going on 35 years. I love the church. I, I love the church. So on the one hand, it's kind of discouraging. But on the other hand, I, I think I see the hand of God in all of it, showing, showing us, showing the church our brokenness and inviting us to embrace our brokenness and, and come back to the kingdom of heaven. As I think about the church, as I was diving into Ephesians, God brought Gary Dockery's story to mind. And I, I just had this sense of him saying, this is my church. For years, maybe decades, no decades, not maybe, for, for decades we have drifted in the shadows of a coma. And to be honest, at times it seemed that hope was wearing thin, but with all my heart I believe that an awakening is on the horizon that will cause us to echo the words Tim Thompson uttered in light of Gary Dockery's revival. There's not but one way to describe it, he said, it's a miracle of God. R.A. Torrey, who was a pastor and a student of Revival, once said, Revival is inevitable when you get a group of people together who will get right with God and persevere in prayer. 
I start with all of that to just simply say, I love the book of Ephesians. It is my prime book. It is a part of my biblical core. That There is no book like the book of Ephesians that has shaped my my, my sense of what the church is and, and, and even has shaped my, my sense of what the journey is for us as Jesus apprentices. I, I love the book of Ephesians because Paul had a never dying hope for the church. Even while he was in prison, his soul just soars with hope for the church. We're going to see it all throughout the letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians speaks to me as an individual of my journey to Jesus, but really more than that, it proclaims hope, God-dreamed, spirit-inspired, Christ-built hope, a hope for the church, and at least in part, that's really what I hope we all take away from our time in Ephesians, Paul's first letter from prison. So for the rest of this episode, let me just do a little bit of an intro by looking at the greeting, right? Every letter has a greeting, and Paul's greeting to the church at Ephesus will answer three questions. Who wrote it? Who read it? And finally, what's the message? So first of all, who wrote it? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of the word apostle, you might immediately go to the 12 apostles who were followers of Jesus Christ. Paul was not one of the 12. But the word apostle doesn't mean follower. It means to be sent. An apostle is a sent one. Paul was someone chosen and sent to teach with authority, to lead with authority, to teach with authority the words of Christ. After his experience on the Damascus Road, being confronted with the glory of Christ, he became an apostle. And and really what this means is that Paul was not just a volunteer for the position. He was an appointee. He was called. He was chosen. He was sent. He was sent as a missionary to expand the kingdom of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. That's what it says, by the will of God. Paul was called, chosen, and sent upon God's decision. He wasn't just doing his own thing. He was doing God's thing. Just follow your heart. That's our mantra. Paul was all about following God's heart. He he didn't set his own agenda. He followed God's path. And this was so important to Paul. Paul was a guy who had a lot apart from Christ. At least many in his day, many of his contemporaries, his peers would have seen it that way. He he, he looked like externally, he, he had it all going. He had the right upbringing, the right culture. He was intelligent, he had some element of authority and a grand purpose, but but you know, Paul often, we'll see this in his letters, he often goes to great pains to express what he so simply says here, it is not on the basis of who I am or what I've done that I come to you in this capacity as an apostle. It's because of God. I don't come to you by the authority of other people. I've not been forced to come to you because I need a job. I am an apostle by the will of God. I am sent to you by the will of God. So really, that's a good question for us to ask of ourselves here at the beginning. Who am I by the will of God? Who am I by the will of God? What is God's call on my life? What is my purpose according to God's will? A lot of voices out there want to shape our purpose, or at least tell us we need to discover our purpose for ourselves. But how often do we ask the question, who am I by the will of God? Would you ask yourself that over the course of these coming days? Who am I by the will of God, not my will, not my parents or my friends or that social media influencer or this or that hero, but God's will. Not not because of what other people think of me, but because of what God thinks of me. Who is God shaping me to be? For what calling? For what purpose? You know, I think another way of saying this is just simply, who gets my ears? <laughs> to whom do I listen? I mean, some of us listen to the news more than we do the word. We give our ears to our favorite politician, pundit, or podcaster. Podcaster. 
Who gets my ears? The answer to that question goes a long ways towards determining my shape, my purpose, my calling. See, we'll never have the type of peace and joy and success that Paul so often speaks about, even from prison, until we allow God to have his will, his way in our lives. So who am I by the will of God? And and listen to me. I, I can tell you this beyond a shadow of a doubt. God loves you just as much as he loved Paul. And just like Paul, he has a will for you. Paul, an apostle by the will of God, wrote the letter. Who read it? Well, first of all, it's addressed to the saints. <laughs> now, if a letter came to you in care of the saints, who, who would you give it to? I mean, who are the saints? Are, are they the spiritually elite missionaries, top of the food chain spiritually, <laughs> pastor? Yeah, I mean, who, who are they? Well, not according to the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the broken, blessed are the desperate, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If the word saint refers to people who never sin, then Paul was writing to an imaginary people who don't exist, still never did, still don't. Saints are not perfect people. They're forgiven people. The the word saint means the holy ones. That In the NIV, it says holy ones. It's the word saint or, or the ones set apart. Really, that's what that means. Saints are people set apart unto God. Not that they're morally pure or perfect. They're set apart by God. Why? Because of his love, because of his grace. Max Lucado writes, there was a time in your life when you realized that God could not love you more than he already does. There was a time when you realized that God's love does not ebb and flow. God's love does not come and go. There was a time when you said God's love is too good to be true, but it's too great to be missed. There was a time when you said yes to God. And if you have said yes to God, if you've said yes to Jesus, you're a saint, <laughs> You're one of his saints. You're one of God's new creation set apart as his people in his new community, the church. Now, just kind of quickly notice the common theme running through what we've seen so far. Paul is an apostle or one sent by the will of God, and he's written a letter to a people whom God has set apart to himself. What's the common theme here? It's the priority of God. It's the will of God, God's apostle, God's church, God's saints. It's not on the basis of merit that Paul became an apostle. It's not on the basis of merit that we become saints. It's all by the gracious will of God. What else does this verse tell us about the readers of Paul's letter? It says that they're faithful. And that's the flip side of grace, right? Grace is not only God choosing us, it's God changing us. Though we do not earn our sainthood with acts of faithfulness. If we are God's saints set apart to him, there will be signs of faithfulness in our lives. Not not that we're perfect or complete, but we're growing and and hungry to be God's faithful saints. Uh, Last week, my daughter Katie ran the Chicago Marathon while she was pregnant, by the way, which means that my unborn granddaughter also ran the Chicago Marathon. There was one point, probably many points, but one in particular, Lynn said, Katie just wanted to quit. I just want to stay with you guys. She said, everything hurt. But they encouraged her. They wouldn't let her stay, and she finished the race. And it reminded me of the story of John Aquari. At 7 p.m. on October 20th, 1968, a few thousand spectators remained in the Mexico City Olympic Stadium. It was almost dark. The last of the marathon runners were stumbling across the finish line. And finally, the spectators heard the wail of sirens on police cars. And and as all eyes turned to the gate, the lone runner, last runner, wearing the colors of Tanzania, staggered into the stadium. 
He was the last contestant to finish the 26-mile journey. He had been injured in a fall and was bloodied and crudely bandaged. He hobbled the final lap around the track, and, and as he crossed the finish line, the spectators rose and applauded as though he were the winner. After he had crossed the finish line, someone asked him why he had not quit. He replied simply, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. That's faithfulness. Listen to me. God did not save us and send us to start the race. He saved us and sent us to finish the race. And, and that requires a don't quit grit, a grit that rose to the surface of Paul's soul all those years in prison. To finish well, we need to concentrate and consecrate. We need to keep focused on where we want to go, and we need to be willing to give everything we have to get there. Will Rogers used to say, even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. When my time comes to an end, I passionately desire to stand before God and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Who's the letter directed to? To us, the faithful saints, called and cleaned up by God and doggedly determined that we will not quit. No matter how hard the race or how dark the night, we will be the church of grit. Finally, what is the message? We'll start getting into that in the next episode. But for now, let me just read that greeting again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Father God, I pray for each and every person listening to my words who is joining me on this journey through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And God, I pray that we would ask ourselves the question, who am I by your will? God, what do you have for me? God, what do you want for me? God, how are you shaping me? And for what purpose and for what calling? God, I, I pray that we would hear your will in your word. And I, I pray that we would hear your love <laughs> in your word, that you would whisper to us by the Spirit of God that we are the children of God, that you love us more than we can begin to imagine. And God, would you allow to rise up in us a don't quit grit so that we would be one of the faithful ones, so that we would stand before you one day and hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.